Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Rituparna Padgiri, on New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Today, I'm going to be in conversation with Yugo Seron Anaya. Yugo Seron Anaya is an Associate Professor of Sociology at Leigh University in Pennsylvania, USA. Between 29 and 2021, he was the Director of the Latin American and Latino Studies Program at this institution. In 2021, he was a research fellow at the Center for Advanced Latin American Studies at the University of Guadalajara in Mexico. Hugo completed his PhD and MA at the University of Essex in Britain and his undergraduate studies at the National University of Mexico. His research interests lie in the studying up field. His work analyzes how class structures, racialized dynamics, and gender relations influence the organization of the material and symbolic borders of the upper middle and upper classes in Latin America. He is particularly interested in understanding how dynamics of privilege are reproduced via a wide range of ordinary interactions such as jokes, sayings, and insults. In 2019, he published Privilege at Play, Class, Race, Gender, and Golf in Mexico, Oxford University Press, which won the 2020 Outstanding Book Award offered by the North American Society for the Sociology of Sports. The book will soon be published in Spanish by the Latin American Council of Social Sciences in its open access library. He is currently working on his second book project, analyzing the relationship between hypergentrification, gender dynamics, local understandings of whiteness, religious identity, and private schools in Guadalajara, Mexico, the second largest metropolis in this country. Hugo, I'm glad to have you with us. Welcome to this interview. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to share more about my work. Right. So I was very fascinated reading your book, A Privilege at Play, Class, Race, Gender and Golf in Mexico. And I would like to ask you, what was your inspiration behind writing this book? Well, I, 
I recognize that there has been an amazing body of work in not only in this country or, or the continent. All over the world, we have amazing body of work exploring uh, notions of uh, masculinity, notions of class, notions of health, among many other issues among the poor. But I felt, and, and I still feel in the present strongly, that we have a social scientist miss the opportunity to explore those folks at the uh, upper parts of our social hierarchies. Um, we have sort of missed the opportunity to understand the conditions in which power is reproduced. My, my feeling is that sometimes we end up with uh, analysis of poverty that are self-contained arguments in which uh, we understand poverty as a condition of being poor. And in order to expand the long argument about uh, re relational sociology or the, the dream um, to expand our discipline in a relational way, I decided to move uh, the focus of my work not to poor folks in Mexico, but rather to invert the argument and look at the upper part of the hierarchy. That is sort of the aim behind my project. Right. So could you also talk a little bit about your field site and how you got access to it? Right. And this is, this is an amazing question because this is the most difficult part. Uh, people working on um, the studying up field have been saying for a long time, this argument is not new, of course, that comes from the 1940s. Uh, access to some of these spaces is the most difficult uh, element. So to give you a sense, uh, this sport, uh, it's play in private settings in Mexico as it is in most of the world. Actually, outside of Australia, the United States, uh, Britain, uh, and some uh, couple of other uh, nations in the rest of the world, golf is a sport playing private settings. The average club in uh, private club in Mexico City, the membership fee cost around thirty-five thousand um, dollars to give a sense of the community. So I learned the the fees through chatting with uh, some golfers, but also with some journalists start telling me the, the amount of uh, fees and that gives me a sense of the community. That in a way prevented any discussion about money. I didn't want people to misread my intentions, assuming that I was more interested in, in uh, money issues uh, for some sort of criminal uh, reason. Uh, and instead, I was sort of interested in trying to understand uh, how exactly class operates within this highly uh, exclusive setting. Now, in terms of access, access probably, as I mentioned before, is this really difficult element uh, to gain. In this case, I use part of my position as a researcher, quote unquote, actually, uh, as a graduate student uh, in Britain, and through networks of Latin American, Mexican um, folks stu studying in, in Britain, 
I start making my first connections with uh, golfers. And from there, I slowly expanded the network. At the end of each interview, I asked someone, would you please put me in contact with other uh, golfers? And not, not every single participant actually helped me at the end of the interview. Some of them refused to uh, expand in the networks. Doing ethnographic research, uh, not only about um, wealthy people, but in general, doing ethnographic research, I feel that at some point we need to run on a lucky moment. Uh, we need to keep doing interviews. We need to keep looking for participants. And at some point we may reach that lucky moment. And it happened to me at some point in the interviews, an important uh, executive invited me to his office to do the interview. And a couple of uh, minutes or like half an hour before I show up, a big problem erupted in his company. And then he spent the following two hours on the phone, chatting with different people, trying to solve the problem. And for those two hours and a bit, I was in the waiting room, just reading everything that was, that, that was like all the magazines. By the way, it was full of golf magazines. So I was reading all those magazines. Uh, just waiting and waiting. And eventually when he finished uh, solving the problem and he asked me to come to his office, he was extremely uh, embarrassed. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm extremely embarrassed. You have been waiting for more than two hours. Um, and at the end of the interview, he asked me uh, again, I'm sorry, what can I do for you? And then I asked him, would you mind putting me in contact with other golfers? Uh, and actually, this person sort of broke a barrier that I was trying to solve for about a month and a half. Uh, as an example, I was trying to reach the editor of the most important golf magazine in the country. And every time that I was calling, his secretary never uh, let me speak with him. She was asking, please let me know what do you want uh, to talk to uh, him about give me your contact information and so on. Uh, but I never heard back from him. And then I was calling a, a week later, expecting him to answer the phone. And then I was going to explain myself. I found the idea of explaining myself to a secretary really uh, uh, difficult. And after the interview with the executive, he told me, I have a friend who is the editor of a magazine. You may enjoy uh, chatting with him. He picked the phone and put me in contact directly with this person. That to me was a moment in which I broke a barrier and this person put me in contact with a lot of other uh, golfers. He was actually fundamental in the development of the project. So in, in terms of someone interested in doing uh, starting up uh, work, uh, field work, I would suggest it is difficult. It takes a lot of time. Every single interview cost me two weeks of uh, emails and phone calls with a secretary coordinator going back and forth before the person agreed on or before the person actually uh, told me a, a date and a, a time in which we could meet. And many times interviews were canceled 15 minutes before the agreed uh, meeting. Uh, so it requires a lot of work, it requires a lot of patience, 
but I will suggest you just keep trying and eventually uh, some doors will open. Right. I think uh, what you say totally explains the various kinds of experiences a researcher has when they set out to do ethnographic research work. On that very note, uh, let me also ask you my next question that what are some of the research methods that you have used in this study? If you could elaborate your reasoning behind them as well. Right. In this case, I was mainly using historical um, ethnographic and uh, interviews methods. I was, on the one hand, I was interested to understand the question of why this sport and not basketball or not baseball or not, not cricket, not, not any other sport. Why this sport at a global scale is so deeply connected, identified, associated with uh, wealthy people. So in order to answer that question, I sort of dive into the history of the sport to try to understand what happened, what, what, is, what is that thing that makes this sport so important at a global scale. Uh, so there's uh, res uh, historical um, material in the book explaining the history of the sport uh, from its uh, Scottish origins up to its expansion in Latin America and the present, its global expansion. And probably cities like Dubai is a wonderful example to see the continuation of the long trajectory between wealth and this specific sport. Um, in terms of the other methods, uh, doing interviews and ethnographic work require a lot of preparation, a lot of work. I tried to do a lot of research uh, in relationship to the person I was going to interview, in relationship to the sites that was, I was eventually invited. Uh, some people invited me, started inviting me to the clubs. And through them, I started making other connections. I try to do a lot of research in terms of the history of the club, so then I can ask people about uh, the, the dynamics, trajectory, uh, long history of some of these clubs. Uh, and in terms of the interviews, I was also trying to prepare, on the one hand, some set questions that I was asking every single participant. But on the other, I was trying also to tailor-made some questions in relationship to uh, the specific people. I should say that also as part of this studying up field, being prepared as a researcher means, or, or is really important, but at the, at the same time, we should be very aware that the normal relationship of power that we establish with uh, workers, with uh, marginalized communities, with racial orders, within national boundaries, communities, etc., is commonly inverted when we are dealing with wealthy people. Uh, I recall reading a wonderful study about someone interviewing uh, important politicians and how this researcher learned that she was commonly seated against a wall, and then she started noticing the pattern, and then she later on learned that clocks were commonly uh, hung on that wall. So uh, these important politicians were constantly sitting here against the clock and then 
the politicians were all the time in charge of time. And then they decided when to start and when to finish. Uh, these type of dynamics are also present uh, in my case. I recall probably the most um, important example. I was chasing an important executive in a global corporation. Uh, I knew that he was attending a, a, a tournament and I gained access to that tournament. And then I, pro I approached him at the beginning and he said, oh yeah, of course, we can chat, uh, of course, after the end of the tournament. So I stayed there for about five hours waiting for him. At the end, I approached him and, and he said, oh, of course, yeah, we can sit in the bar. We sat and the interview lasted no more than two minutes. Uh, in less than two minutes, uh, he found my questions and all the work I put into preparing the interview uh, on interesting or uh, on amusing, or he found me like he didn't have time. And then he said, sorry, I need to chat with someone else. And then he moved to the following table and start chatting very vividly, joking with some of the folks who have participated in the tournament. So with that, I'm saying that some of the, the, the methods that we have learned as sociologists Sometimes we need to do some, um, we need to twist them. We need to be ready to prepare to engage in different um, methodology to reach these uh, folks. And, and also in, in, the, in the discussion of methods, currently I'm still in the uh, uh, um, uh, studying up field. But in the case of my new project, I'm starting playing around with social media. Uh, we have uh, this phenomenon in which people are broadcasting all their lives uh, on social media. So I think that social media still have on, on, on top um, potentiality to offer us a lot of research, sorry, a lot of evidence about the life of the wealthy and the way in which class, gender, and racialized elements are constantly portrayed in consumption among um, wealthy people, the type of brands, the type of things they engage with. Uh, so for this project, I will start exploring uh, TikTok and Twitter as ways to uh, gather more information about uh, these wealthy communities that now I'm working on. Mm, uh, very interesting. Uh, you know, you go in your book, you write that your initial interest in economic elites, privilege and class inequalities led you to this research on golf. Uh, I wanted to ask, how do you think is golf connected to capitalism and imperialism and how it becomes a site to understand the intricacies between class and race and gender? Thank you for the question. That is, that, that, that's an amazing question. Uh, let me share that in the literature on um, sociology of sports, more so globally, it is usually argued that cricket is a sport of empire. Um, and the argument goes that cricket, it was sort of so deeply connected with the British Empire uh, that whenever Britain uh, develop uh, colonial relationships, cricket was at the center in the Caribbean, uh, in India, in South Africa, etc. I will argue that when we expand our notion of empire, 
uh, not only to capture the British Empire, we should think of golf as that sport of empire. Let me elaborate on my argument. Uh, yes, of course, cricket expanded its borders alongside the empire, and we can almost map historically the expansion of uh, cricket clubs alongside new colonies being incorporated into the British Empire. But so so was the case of golf. When we look at the, the case of golf, golf also followed the empire. The first club funded outside of um, Scotland or England was Ireland. And in Ireland, we have all the, the new colonies and the creation of uh, some golf clubs. But then we have the, the collapse of the empire and then we have the role of the United States expanding this sport. The first, you can think of Afghanistan, the first uh, golf club founded there by the U.S. Army. But you can think of Central America, the, the first golf course in Central America, Panama, founded by the U.S. Army. So we have the role of the U.S. Army uh, expanding this sport. But then we have since the 60s, the process in which it is not the U.S. Army only. What we have, of course, we have the case of Japan uh, expanding uh, golf, particularly uh, at the other side of the world from the United States. But apart from Japan, what we have since the late 70s and 80s are global financial corporations um, pretty much fueling the new development of courses, tournaments all around the world. And I mentioned before Dubai, and Dubai is a perfect perfect example to look at the way in which the sport is deeply connected to empire, notions of empire. Uh, and you can easily look for uh, pictures of, of Dubai in the 1970s and, and in the present. And if you Google golf courses, you will see that we have this uh, wide range of courses um, of highly sophisticated facilities, uh, fancy clubs and so on. And at the same time, you have these global corporations, uh, financial global corporations playing a role. So in many ways, I would argue that when we try to understand the expansion of empire and capitalism, the connection between capitalism, uh, imperialism, even more, the, the, the idea of racial capitalism, this sport offers a wonderful window uh, to explore the idea. If you, if you think like, what is the relationship between this sport and global capitalism or racial capitalism, just think about the role of grass in portraying notions of whiteness. Grass is that quintessential element that all over the world represents early on and later on the United States. Any single movie uh, portraying upper-class people in the United States in which white folks are represented at large, sooner or later will show us a shot in which a large part of the house, country club, etc., uh, has this sort of uh, perfect, immaculate uh, grass lawn. Um, so in many ways, I think, I, I argue that one of the, the fascinations, global fascinations about this sport among some other things uh, that we can uh, talk about in a second, it is grass and the wing which grass globally represents first the reproduction of the British landscape in foreign lands, 
and nature as the sort of white consumption, upper middle class uh, habit uh, of the United States. Right. So my next question is more specific to your work on Mexico. And I would want to know how racial perceptions influence the distribution of resources, opportunities, as well as status positions in the country. Ah, that is uh, also an amazing question. In the case of Mexico and Latin America, it, it seems to me that, that in Mexico and Latin America have an inverted argument from the United States. Whereas in the United States, the idea is that the American dream is the standard and as such class seems to be irrelevant and then race seems to be like the, the thing that divides U.S. society. In Latin America, people since the creation of modern nations in the 19th century argue the opposite. Uh, in the Declaration of Independence, in the early um, uh, writings of the founders of all these different nations, the issue of class was never was never addressed in the way in which the issue of racial inequality was addressed. So these societies were founded under the argument that racial equality was one of the main aims of the modern independent nation. Uh, and as such, we have in all Latin America a variation of a mixed race, or what is called in Spanish mestizaje, which argues that a long history of interracial marriage uh, has created a society in which folks are of all type, all type of colors, and actually the color of the skin, and physical features are not important. That uh, you may be black, you may be brown, you may be uh, of Asian characteristic features or white features, and actually that is relevant because race doesn't uh, influence in any way the distribution of resources, uh, access to education, uh, and so on. So this has been the dominant paradigm that has shaped Latin American societies. However, when we look at the composition of elites in every single nation in Latin America, every single one of them, and when we contrast that the composition of elites against the composition of folks who are at the very bottom of the class hierarchy, we have something very peculiar, which is uh, white or folks who will actually qualify as white in, under U.S. standards are overrepresented uh, in the elite, and faults of black indigenous uh, features are as well overrepresented at the very bottom of the class hierarchy. And then if class, if race doesn't, doesn't matter, and actually class is that thing that organizes this society, we shouldn't find this type of uh, consistent pattern. We should be able to find all sorts of colors and physical features at the very top and all sorts of colors and physical features at the bottom, being class, that element that organizes society. But that's not the, the case. We have a, a, this overrepresentation of white folks uh, or, or folks who may or may not identify as white openly. However, when we take um, 
images and we look and, and we do interviews and we access some of these spaces, we have this representation of uh, local notions of whiteness, which I insist in many cases are similar to uh, North American uh, ideas of whiteness and European ideas of whiteness. So in this case, my work is part of a small group of researchers trying to show that actually against the idea that race or racial ideas or ethnic ideas are not relevant, I am trying to show the opposite. Like, that's not true. When we start pulling numbers, when we start doing ethnographic work, we see the opposite. We see that race does matter in the way in which people look for uh, partners, for example. Uh, the issue of looking for a long-term partner. The way in which certain phenotypical features are considered more desirable. Uh, and the issue, of course, doesn't stop. In, it's not an issue of beauty. I know that some people may think like, well, if that's beauty, who cares? It's really not that important. We should pay attention to something more important. I do argue that the, this problem doesn't stop there. It, is, it goes beyond that, and actually it penetrates the society up to the point in which resources are distributed, the way in which societies and, and cities are organized, uh, and, and the way in which some folks, those at the bottom of the class hierarchy, are not only poor on their um, uh, traditional class analysis, but are also racialized ways that makes things more difficult to argue that class is the only reason why some of these groups are, are at the very bottom and make us think that mainly or probably uh, alongside class resources have been historically distributed uh, on the racial lines. That would be my argument of why we need to pay more attention to the distribution of uh, racial um, uh, the way in which individuals are connected to their racial features of some individuals are connected to uh, class uh, dynamics. Right. So uh, since we are talking about dynamics, uh, let me also ask you how you think historical dynamics, or if at all, they do impact the contemporary relations of privilege do you think that uh, the historical window offers an analysis of how golf has developed in mexico throughout the 20th century wow uh, yes yeah absolutely do you know that there, there's a beautiful piece by a sociologist uh norbert elias um in which he, the, the piece is the retreat, the, the title of the piece is The Retreat of Sociologists into the Present. And Elias makes the point that we should, as sociologists, we should pay attention to the way in which um, historical dynamics are fundamental to understand the articulation of present day uh, social uh, structures. And uh, we can think of Du Bois, one of the most uh, recently celebrated scholars in the United States, and the wing, he was going constantly back to history to try to understand the exclusion of uh, Black Americans. Following that line of, of thinking, 
I argue that the only way to understand why this sport is so important in the present among corporate, among business and economic elite, it is to go back in history and to understand the trajectory. To give you a, an example, the most exclusive club today in Mexico actually was founded in the 1940s as a reef in between two clubs. One group of members didn't like the idea of accepting more Mexican, more locals uh, into the club and letting them participate in the uh, administrative roles in the club. Uh, whereas some other part of that uh, first club was decided about this option of accepting more locals. This club was founded as the enclave of British and American uh, economic elites that were doing business in Mexico. So by the late 30s, there's this rift between these two clubs and some members uh, decided to go and founded a different club in which they will keep this space as the enclave of uh, Anglo-American elites. That club is the most exclusive club in the present. And also when we think about the, this history or the history of this club, there's also something as well about the way in which an, a sense of uh, Anglo-American culture and its connection with whiteness was, a, was present since the very origins of the sport and since the origins of the foundation of some of the clubs. And I don't think there is a, it is not a coincidence that this club is still the most important in the country and the way in which it has sort of preserved its Anglo-Saxonness uh, at the core. I don't have, I recall as part of the interviews, I interview an Asian executive, someone who was uh, an executive from Japan, who told me that he had heard that, uh, that in this club, the most important executives working for large uh, Asian corporations, they could go there and play, but they are not allowed to buy memberships. I never fully, I was not able to corroborate that piece of information, but considering the long history of this club and the way in which it was founded, uh, there is something about capitalism and whiteness that I think is present and history of these spaces provide those deep clues about how that was organized and some of the present dynamics. Okay. So uh, you also say in your book that women occupy a paradoxical position in the uh, what is otherwise the affluent world of golf in Mexico. Uh, I am very interested to know a little more about this and if you could explain this with a few examples. Sure, of course. Uh, usually, again, people... Actually, at the very beginning, when I approached these sites, I didn't see gender as, as an important element. To me, the whole community was composed by extremely wealthy people. And then my early interest was trying to understand how exactly class operates and class privilege operates in these settings. 
when I started, and, and then in early presentations of, of my work, I recall finding female researchers asking me about gender. And with a degree of embarrassment, I should confess that at the beginning, my answer was, I don't know. And I was thinking to myself, I don't see how gender may be relevant in this case. Later on, when I started interviewing female uh, members, I discovered exactly the opposite, that gender is fundamental in the organization of the community, that, that, gen that there are mechanisms through which gender uh, overrides class distinctions. Uh, let me be more specific. In some of the most important clubs, women have a, a set of restrictions on the days in which they can play, on the spaces that they have, they can access or not. One of them being the bar. Uh, the main bar is a sort of forbidden space for most uh, for women. One may think, well, who cares if the bar is uh, banned for women? It's actually irrelevant. No, it is not. The bar is the space in which all what happened in the in the course becomes visible for the whole community. Uh, unlike a regular bar in which people will contain the conversation and jokes to one's own table, in the bar of the clubs I visited, I found that people were sharing uh, jokes uh, and then people in the following table or two tables uh, in front of us and so on were participating. They were uh, shouting back a joke. They were talking about an important torment, internal torment. So I realized that the bar was that space in which members could hear about the uh, playing skills of other members or who was a witty person to play with or who tells the most funny jokes or who has the most uh, fascinating, outlandish uh, way of playing, etc. And based on that, players start looking for each other to play with, and then networks are expanded. The fact that women cannot access these spaces sort of put them outside of the view of other men. And when I started asking men about the distinction, could you please tell me more about how different it is the, the game of women and men, I consistently hear this comments about, I don't know about women, I don't play with women, I never see them playing, uh, I can tell you about my wife, I can tell you about my sister, I can tell you about my daughter, but outside of that really close circle, men didn't have uh, a clear understanding. And then when I cross and start interviewing women, I have these narratives in which women complain about the mistreatment they constantly uh, are subject to based on the ignorant position of women, the way in which men are unable to differentiate between amazing players and so-so players, and the way in which they think of all female players as just bad players. I recall the case of one interviewee who told me and showed me, I'm, amazing, I'm an amazing player. I can easily defeat more than half of the men in this uh, club, however, I have heard so many times jokes about my playing skills by folks who have never played with me, by folks who have never seen me playing. And then 
as part of this conversation, I asked her whether she felt that this type of mistreatment uh, was carried over on her professional life, and she immediately answered yes. Uh, the same perception about gender uh, and that I am a clumsy player is also present in the wing which some executives who have no clue who I am uh, sometimes tell jokes about uh, female executives and so on. So then I found that the gender was important. Um, but then I also found that gender was, became more important than class. And in this case, I started asking uh, players or club members if they can share with me how do they start playing. I found in the case of women that most of them started playing with their uh, fathers. They told me these stories. Oh, when I was seven years old, I was coming to the club with my father. We're playing. I started playing with him. Later on, I took some lessons. Uh, so these women by way of having a family that had a membership in some of these clubs uh, for at least two generations, were signing their upper-middle, solid upper-middle-class, upper-class upbringing. And when I asked about their partners, some of them told me how their partners or now their husbands didn't play, didn't learn uh, the sport until later in life. It was after they got married that they, through her connections, uh, that the couple managed to buy a membership and then join the club. Once they joined the club, women uh, were subject to all these restrictions in terms of times to play, in terms of spaces they could access, among many other issues. But the husband, who may now be part of the upper middle, may now be part of the upper class, but was not necessarily part of the upper middle upper class uh, in, in his upbringing, which that doesn't mean either that he was part of the working class. Um, he was more likely part of a middle class bordering the upper middle class or, or, or some sort of uh, bordering line. But by being male, they access all these set of privileges that were banned for women, despite women's higher uh, class origins, they were subject to all these restrictions. So what I found is that women in these spaces are subordinated privileged individuals. Uh, they are subordinated by their gender identity, not by class identity. In terms of class, they are the same as their peers, but in terms of gender, they are treated differently. And the irony I found among uh, these uh, wealthy women is that no single one of them suggested that they wanted to engage in an open fight uh, to reverse this pattern. They, were, they complained deeply and they were very clear about these inequalities, but they didn't think of organizing an open rebellion. And for quite some time, I was sort of puzzled. Why didn't they want to openly engage with uh, uh, strategies to completely reverse this gender inequality and to create a more equal, in gender terms, uh, relationship? And my argument is that 
part of the irony is that if they engage in an open rebellion, they may tarnish, they may, they may destroy the all the things and mechanisms and structures that give them privilege in the very first place. So they may also find themselves losing that privilege. And it seems that some of them prefer to keep that subordinated position uh, overall in, in the community, but keep their overall privilege within uh, national contexts. Uh, this is what I found like, doing research among these communities. Very interesting. It in fact mirrors a lot of experiences of what women's sport fans can also probably relate to. And I can vouch for it being an avid sports fan myself. Last question, Hugo. How does this book represent a renewed call to arms, uh, a phrase that you use for social scientists who are interested in studying privilege? Well, I'm trying, I'm trying to make the case that we should look up more often, that we need to pay attention to um, those with power. And we know from time to time we read those journalistic pieces showing how since the uh, 19, late 1970s, 1980s onwards, all around the world, it is not one single country. And we have Piketty's book about capital uh, showing us how with some variations, of course, in some cases more acute than in others, what we have is this uh, hyper-concentration of wealth in the hands of very few folks uh, all over the world. And sometimes I wonder, and I think I, I present that reflection in the book, I wonder to what extent our work as social scientists have produced a lot of information and research about the poor. To what extent all our books, articles, research have led policymakers and those in the world of translating uh, academic research into policy, we have produced enough understanding of how to better control, better police, better keep working class communities uh, in a position in which they cannot fight back against um, new policies, um, new ways of exploitation, etc. But when we think about the opposite in every single case and in every single country, this is not about one, one country or another, in every single country, what we have is that we have very limited understanding of those folks with plenty of resources. We don't have a deep sense of uh, their notions of gender, notions of violence, notions of their aspirations, their views on the poor, among many others. We barely understand that part. And then my reflection is, to what extent that may have allowed the upper middle and upper classes all around the world to deeply exploited uh, neoliberal capitalism in the last 30 years uh, and to what extent that may partially explain the fact that we are still discussing whether taxes may be uh, relevant or not. It seems that we're in square one 
when we think about how to uh, tackle the huge class inequalities that we see all over the world. But when, you, when, we, when we think about the opposite, we have a lot of information about peasants, about workers, about the urban poor, about the lower middle classes, etc. But we have no information about uh, those folks at the very top. Uh, in that regards, I am sort of uh, inviting my fellow social scientists. We need to find ways, new ways to look at those uh, with power. We need to find new ways to explore uh, research mechanisms, research techniques uh, to understand how the, the, the inequality that we see in, in the world uh, needs to be tackled. And this is not something of um, um, envy uh, sociology, sociological project, but rather, how can we create more functional societies? Uh, so far, if I think of Latin American societies, and of course, it's not only Latin America, uh, we have highly dysfunctional societies in which a handful of families control uh, national economies. I don't think that's good for me. I don't think that's good for a country. I don't think that's good for all of us, the environment including. Uh, so I will invite people. We have in social media the great possibility to develop new techniques uh, to do research about the wealthy and try to find ways uh, to develop more information. Right. Thank you so much once again for doing this interview, for giving our viewers, rather listeners, the opportunity to uh, hear about your fantastic book. And I'm also excited about its Spanish open access publication. And hopefully more and more people read it as well as listen to your fascinating uh, interview for the NBN. Thank you once again, Hugo, for uh, making time out for this. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm, I'm really excited uh, and I hope that the conversation make um, some folks interested in uh, looking up in different societies. Thank you very much.